Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, a new edition of the historical novel DeLuna, founder of North America's first colony, is published just in time for the 450th anniversary of DeLuna's landing in present-day Pensacola. We recognize that we really had not established in the minds of many people who Tristan DeLuna really was and what the contribution was. And so we, we kept kidding one another. You write a book about it. No, you write a book about it. Well, that was what I finally did in 1977. Professional deer hunting during the Depression in Florida. Well, the people that had the cattle and the horses being dipped, they said all these deers got these ticks. It was a big fight. And we'll discuss the other war of 1812. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Fantasia No. 8 by composer Luis Millan was a popular piece of music in Spain as Don Tristan de Luna and 1,500 colonists set sail for the New World to establish a permanent settlement at present-day Pensacola in 1559. Just in time for the 450th anniversary of the de Luna landing, the Florida Historical Society Press has published the John Appleyard historical novel De Luna, founder of North America's first colony. Appleyard says that the idea for a book about DeLuna and his ill-fated colony began 60 years ago when Pensacola's annual Fiesta of Five Flags was established. Well, DeLuna was, uh, of course, a historical figure that had largely been lost in the pages of history. And in 1949, a group of uh, local businessmen came together recognizing that Pensacola needed something, something of a magnet for tourism. And so someone suggested that a fiesta, an annual, uh, annual celebration, be held and that DeLuna become the magnet at the center of it. And this group uh, organized and raised a little money 
and in 1950, the first celebration of what they call the Fiesta of Five Flags was held. And that celebration has been continued. It had been held every single year, usually in June. And uh, the, you know, the unfortunate about, part about it, of course, is that they have not stayed historically true to the character. They have more, made him a, uh, a, a satin and sequins dressed affair and have not done what they could have done uh, to celebrate the history of the event. Fifty years ago, John Appleyard found himself leading the effort to recognize the 400th anniversary of the DeLuna landing, and he decided an historical novel was needed to tell the dramatic story of DeLuna's attempted colony. Well, I became, I became a part of the DeLuna story, I guess that's the right way to put it, when I was chosen in the, in the summer of 1958 to become the state director of the Florida Quadricentennial Celebration, which was to be held the summer of 59, marking the 400th anniversary of DeLuna's arrival here. Uh, quite honestly, I, while I had a history degree, I had no, in, no background at all on either Pensacola or Florida. I had been in Pensacola about 10 years. And so immediately we were, we were set forth with the precious little money and uh, about eight and a half months to create what was literally a, uh, a small, a mini world's fair of history. And the, this was, all of this was put together, of course, with the assistance uh, and, and great cooperation of the Spanish government, the British government, the French government, a lot of help from the people in Mexico, and of course the Florida Historical Society and a number of other resources here uh, contributed to that. And what was put together on Pensacola Beach was a unique celebration. It was in two, really in two parts. For the, for, to house the, the celebration, the historical portion of the celebration, they built a motel, built it almost overnight, but put nothing in there that was a partition. In other words, we had the long corridors, no plumbing showing, so we had these five corridors on which we could put uh, all the historical exhibits. And uh, se separate from that, we recreated the Spanish village, which had been erected here by, uh, we call it the third Spanish settlement. It had been erected in 1722. It was on Santa Rosa Island, not in the location that we uh, recreated it, but it was uh, fortunately uh, for all all of Floridians, uh, mid midway through the life of that little village, a an English trader happened to arrive in Pensacola. He was an artist, and he sat on a his vessel out in the bay and sketched the village, uh, beautifully done, and then had the good sense to put a legend underneath so we knew what each of the buildings were. And that, that drawing appeared in an English mag magazine and happily has survived. And that was what we used to recreate the village. And, uh, of course, we populated it with uh, about a dozen artisans who came here from Spain to practice the sort of uh, trades that they would have had had they been here in the 1750s. And that, that was part of the Quadricentennial. All of the exhibits that involved everything you can think of. Uh, the Spanish were very generous in lending materials to us. Uh, the English uh, and, and others were, were helpful. And when, then we got some absolutely un unbelievable help from Colonial Williamsburg. Their people helped us with a lot of design. And, and they had just, of course, a year, a few years before, uh, had the, the anniversary of Jamestown. And so they showed us what they had done, how they had done it, and while we had nothing like the resources they did, we did the best we could. And the, the, the lady who did all of the costuming for their outdoor pageant there called the Common Glory, uh, a lady with a, a degree in costuming from Yale, not only designed our costumes for our wax figures that we had in the, in the display area, she then came here and literally dressed the figures for us. They couldn't, you couldn't have asked for more help than we did. But anyway, it came together, and the celebration opened on the 14th of uh, May in, uh, in, 1550, in, in 1959. Uh, we had a, a great assembly of uh, political figures here uh, from, the, from the senators and the governor. On, 
everybody came, and that opened the door, and we continued in operation through the 30th of September of that year. The last week was devoted to having busloads of all the uh, high school seniors from the county who came and went through the, uh, with the guided tours through the exhibit. So we felt we had a success. Uh, once again, when it was all over, the man who was the, the director, the, the head of the commission, uh, he became a very close friend of mine. We sat there month after month agonizing with one another because with all that was done, we recognized that we really had not established in the minds of many people who Tristan DeLuna really was and what the contribution was. And so we, we kept kidding one another. You write a book about it. No, you write a book about it. Well, that was what I finally did in 1977. And that's the story from which we tell the story to, to groups today. Appleyard did write the book, and it's now being published by the Florida Historical Society Press. In the historical novel DeLuna, founder of North America's first colony, John Appleyard tells the exciting story of DeLuna's effort to establish a permanent settlement in present-day Pensacola and how his efforts were thwarted by a powerful hurricane that arrived just as the 1,500 colonists were unloading their ships. The DeLuna expedition, all 1,550 members of it, were sent here as a, a grand design by the Spanish in the middle of the 1550s their design was to seal off North America against in, intrusion or colonization by the French and the English, both of whom were very interested at this time, but having just passed through a long, bloody, dynastic war, were not prepared financially or otherwise to make a, a commitment at that time. So the, the Spanish put together a grand plan and uh, chose a man who had uh, military experience, who was a, a key figure in government, who, uh, whose family was, uh, was financially able to, to fund a part of the expedition, and he put the, they put together this plan, which was to put assemble in, on the eastern shore of Mexico and come with a large fleet and land here at what they then called Oshus, which we now, of course, call Pensacola. And they were to, they were to place here about one-third of their company. And the remaining two-thirds would march north to the center of what we now call Alabama, to where the Coosa Indian Nation existed. And the Spanish had had prior uh, contact with the Coosans through the work of Hernando de Soto. And the, the goal was now for De Luna to place a small way station there, uh, kind of a halfway point between Oshus and what the third colony was to be, which was to be located about where Cape Hatteras is on the Atlantic coast today. And the grand plan was, as soon as the Atlantic and Gulf uh, colonies were established, then they would be reinforced uh, by more people coming from Spain and from Mexico, and they would spread north and south on the Atlantic, east and west along the Gulf, and then thus literally seal the continent off from the French and the Spanish. And that was the plan, and probably would might very well have succeeded had the hurricane of uh, the 19th of uh, August, 1559, literally devastated the uh, the supply chain and put them, well, the, 15, uh, the survivors of the 1500 struggled to, to stay alive up until the month of uh, May in 1561. Even after the devastating hurricane hit the colony, Don Tristan de Luna wanted to continue to establish the settlement, but his requests for assistance and additional supplies were denied. By this time, situation in, in Europe had changed. The, the situation in France had deteriorated, the political situation there had deteriorated somewhat. And also in, in England, the poor Queen Elizabeth was struggling just to stay on the throne. So the Spanish weren't nearly as worried about the, the situation there. Actually, the, the, there's, a, there's a sort of a parallel there. Early in the, in the 19th century, when uh, Florida became part of the United States, our, our federal government was scared to death that the uh, Spanish deterioration in Latin America would open the door to either French 
or British or both uh, intrusion in Latin America. And so the, the new government of uh, uh, President Monroe quickly moved to establish two things, a South Atlantic fleet, which would be the, the big stick, the deterrent to the foreign powers, and then a navy yard, which would support the, the new fleet. And so Pensacola was chosen as the, the, uh, na the site for the navy yard, and it was, and of course they pr proceeded with that, and that was the first step in our becoming the cradle of na naval aviation, which came a century later. To create the historical novel De Luna, John Appleyard used all of the historical documents available, including diaries, journals, and other accounts of the expedition. Although based on historical fact, Appleyard's book is a fictionalized account. I learned a long time ago that uh, while many of us love history and will read tons of biographies and all sorts of things of that kind, the, the John Q. Citizen does not find that particularly interesting. Take the same information and dramatize it in novel form, make it easy to read with some characters that can be followed, and the, the whole situation changes. And that was why I chose to do that with DeLuna. I used uh, his nephew, who was a member of the company, as the spokesperson, and then, of course, we had uh, an ample knowledge of who some of the key characters were, and a half a dozen key persons carry the story as we go, th go through it. There has been some controversy over where exactly the attempted DeLuna settlement was. Some have argued that where Appleyard describes the placement of the colony is is incorrect, but since he originally wrote his novel, archaeological discoveries have proven him to be correct. The, the, the Luna Papers, which are the, the sort of the, the, the 16th century Watergate uh, testimony of, the, of this story, indicated that the colony was based in a situation where the ships calling there would be protected from north winds by high bluffs. And so the, those of us who did the planning of the quadricentennial reasoned that that meant what we today call East Pensacola Heights in Pensacola was the site. Others said, no, that didn't make sense. The, the bluffs were too difficult to mount. Uh, this, the colony probably was at the same place where the second Pensacola was established, which is uh, basically where our naval, naval air station is today. Others, still others said, no, uh, come, come in the middle of the, of the 18th century, the third Pensacola was placed on Santa Rosa Island. That was the logical place. That's where it would be. Well, of course, you could argue back and forth forever because there are no physical remains of the Luna expedition, except uh, about five years ago, the wonderful work of uh, archaeologist uh, Dr. J uh, Judy Benz, who is now the president of the university, discovered first one and then a second uh, remains of member of ships of the Deluna fleet, which are settled down in the mud right below the heights of Pens East Pensacola Heights. So that's basically what uh, sort of vindicates what we thought and the way where we had placed the, the colony, or its attempt anyway, in the novel. The Florida Historical Society Press is publishing the John Appleyard Historical novel De Luna, founder of North America's first colony, in recognition of the 450th anniversary of De Luna's attempted settlement. To order the book online, go to myfloridahistory.org or call 321-690-1971.
This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. During the Great Depression, a man in the Okeechobee area was one of a group of men hired to be professional deer hunters. As Janie Gould explains, his odyssey began decades earlier. When Jeremiah Walker moved to the Okeechobee area in 1862 during the Civil War, he drove cattle to Georgia to help feed Confederate soldiers. Forty-five years later, his grandson, John Hardy Walker Jr., was on a cattle drive headed for Tampa. That's when he got drafted for World War I. For decades, cowboys on horseback herded their livestock to Tampa's port. From Tampa, the cattle was shipped to Cuba. On one particular cattle drive from Okeechobee, John Hardy Walker Jr. and others were overnighting in Sebring. His son, Jerry Walker of Okeechobee, tells the story. They sent his draft notice to the passenger, and Grandpa said, My God, here's a letter from the President of the United States, President Wilson. And Grandpa took it to him. He went into the First World War. They asked him if he wanted to bear arms, and he said, I don't want to kill nobody unless I have to. I mean, I'd rather not. So they said, well, we'll put you in the medics. When they got into France, they said, all of our ambulance drivers we brought with us, they brought off the border. They can't know how to drive a car. They drive a mule train, but they ain't got no mules in France. They got cars to haul these wounded with. They said, I can drive a car. A few years earlier, John Hardy Walker Jr. had bought one of the first cars in Okeechobee. He had it shipped in by train, and it came with an instructor. Before and after the war, John Hardy Walker Sr. and his son were known around Okeechobee and Bassinger by their nicknames. Big judge, little judge. They weren't judges, but everybody called them that. Grandpa could read and write and write wills and stuff like that. Was he a JP, sort of? A justice I don't of the think piece? he was nothing. I think he just did it. Walker Sr. served as a county commissioner before there was an Okeechobee County. He represented the area on the Osceola County Commission. Kissimmee, the county seat, was about 90 miles away, and there's no doubt the roads were primitive. By 1918, Walker and other prominent locals persuaded the state to create Okeechobee County. I think they drew straws to see what collective office is going to have, and Granddad didn't want nothing. He just quit for a while, and then he got to be, they called it, county tax assessor then. Then he had it for two terms. Then Daddy had it for two terms. At the end of Daddy's second term, the county was bankrupt. The city was also bankrupt. They were paying with scrip. In other words, during the Depression, when Okeechobee County and the city were bankrupt, your father was out of a job. He still had the job, but he just didn't have no money to pay him. It was paying 6500 a year during that time. That was fabulous. Like my older brother used to tell me, we had the steak years and you got the beans. While struggling with the Depression in the 1930s, Florida also had to deal with an outbreak of fever ticks fatal to cattle. The ticks came from deer, so the state decided to hire people to wipe out Florida's deer population. John Hardy Walker needed a paying job, so he asked the governor to take him on as a deer hunter. Daddy wrote him a letter. He said, go ahead and we'll just work with me. You send your report in to me and I'll see that you get a check for $75 a month. For every deer he shot, he got $75? No, it wasn't ever deer. It was for a month's work. No, ma'am, you get no $75. You got $75 a month. The goal was to eradicate the deer population, right? Well, the people that had the cattle and the horses being dipped, they said all these deers got these ticks. It was a big fight. There was a few people killed and a few vats blowed up. Did that happen here in Okeechobee? I don't think it did here, but they killed some further up the state. Daddy got a raise to $100 a month because he was a foreman over the crew. Twelve-man crews going out living in the woods killing deer. They didn't kill that many. That was Jerry Walker of Okeechobee. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society.
Most Americans today have little sense of what happened during the War of 1812, other than the British were involved and there was a decisive battle at New Orleans. In fact, the Florida Peninsula in 1812 was the battleground in a chaotic, undeclared war between the U.S. and Spain. Bill Dudley has more. If you learn American history, you may never learn anything about Florida history. But if you learn Florida history, you will know everything about American history. Because, ironically, Florida feeds into American history at just about every level that you can think of. Historian James Cusick is curator of Gainesville's P.K. Young Library of Florida History and the author of The Other War of 1812. Civil War historians probably never think of it, but Florida was fighting the Civil War by 1812. I mean, we're fighting the Civil War 50 years before the Civil War. It was the twilight of Spain's 300-year occupation of the North American continent. The Florida Peninsula was home to roughly 4,000 Spanish, English, and American settlers, Seminole Indians, Spanish soldiers, and one other group whose numbers were small but significant. The Spanish, and to some extent the Seminoles and Miccosukee and Creek Indians, had a policy of allowing slaves to escape from the southern states and run into the Florida wilderness or down into St. Augustine where they could get sanctuary. It's a very aggravating policy for southern slave owners. The Spanish actually ended the policy around 1790, but it didn't stop slaves from coming in sort of an informal underground railroad. But this became a real issue with the citizens of the young United States. Georgia and South Carolina plantation owners were further inflamed when the Spanish actually created a black militia to help defend its territory. The black militia unit could not have been more than 80 men, and at times was probably only 1560. At the same time, the Spanish brought in other troops from Cuba who were also free black. 200 men at most. Americans feared these armed soldiers, plus the few hundred maroons, or blacks who had joined with the Seminole Indians, would attract other slaves to them, possibly even sow the seeds of active insurrection. These men would become symbols to them, symbols of what was really possible. And this was considered just devilry. <laughs> I mean, pure devilry. And if those troops happened to confront any American troops, then it was even worse. After a few initial attempts to invade Spanish territory in the 1790s, the action began in earnest in 1811, when Congress, with the approval of President James Madison, passed a secret act to begin efforts to overthrow the Spanish. In March 1812, a group of so-called patriots, led by former Georgia Governor George Matthews, crossed the border and occupied Fernandina, north of present-day Jacksonville. A week later, they were at the gates of St. Augustine. The patriots were a mix of settlers within Florida who had decided to rebel against the crown. Then there were volunteers out of Georgia. These were people with no official military standing. They weren't militiamen. They had just taken up arms and joined these patriots to help them. Then there was the Georgia militia. They were formal citizen soldiers of Georgia who had come down. Then there were all the regulars in the American army. Their main goal was to force the surrender of St. Augustine. They wanted the governor to give up and to surrender the town, and that was the last stronghold that Spain had. But in June 1812, the United States declared war on England, and Washington had other things to worry about beside the southern frontier. The U.S. Senate refused to endorse an all-out military seizure of East Florida, and the Seminole Indians joined the fight against the Americans, helping end the siege of St. Augustine with a decisive skirmish in a swamp near the old city. The news that there was this big skirmish and that the Americans were forced to retreat and that it was black troops 
with Indian allies who had won this victory. That makes news all over the United States. After a few other actions, this undeclared war disintegrated into chaos. Roving bands of soldiers and volunteers lived off the land, often pillaging or burning farms and looting plantations as far south as present-day Daytona Beach. It was a complete breakdown of law and order, essentially a country that was living under a military occupation for two years in which neither the American army nor the rebel government nor the local Spanish government really had that much control over anything that was going on in the countryside. In Florida, the struggles were to continue in one form or another for decades, with Andrew Jackson's destruction of a Negro fort on the Apalachicola River in 1816 and the first Seminole War a year later. Then the Spanish finally left Florida to the Americans in 1821. So you would think things would end there. Right, that the trouble is now over because now the southern borders are secure. They're all, everything's American. But then in the 1830s, you get the Second Seminole War, a seven-year-long war. Everybody believes it's probably the longest and most costly Indian war that the United States ever fought. Here, once again, free people of color played a major role in the conflict. From 1795 in Spanish East Florida through 1842, end of the Second Seminole War, the whole issue of having people of color who were free in Florida and who stood as an example of freedom and who stood as an example to slaves in, in both in Florida and outside of Florida was a major, major issue for the American South. You get a very different image, I think, of the buildup to the Civil War if you start looking at these sorts of things. Historian James Cusick, I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. If you enjoy the program, please visit our website at myfloridahistory.org and hit the Join Now button. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.